0: time, we'll be looking at teams that have reduced injury, have optimized individual athlete outputs, and have won championships because of the people inside them, those that define the performance culture. There's going to be a number of common elements in our retrospective, and one of them is going to be the presence of my next guest, Matt Howley. I've heard the term around those that know Matt, that he's an emerging expert in the field of performance. Well, I don't really agree with that, because I think he's arrived. Matt's journey from Australia to the US, from the NC2A to professional sports, has landed him at Real Salt Lake in Major League Soccer. Matt has gained an enormous athlete following at the club. He leverages a myriad of signal producing technologies and educates through data to define an athlete centric performance model. I'm sure you'll enjoy Matt's insight, his transparency, and there are some incredible nuggets to take away as we look closely at the team sports structure in our early phase journey of the Human Kinesone Project. We're going to dive in. So, Matt, the last time we connected was in a uh, cafe in Peran, and uh, I was eating tacos, and I forget what you had for lunch that day. Um, do you remember?
1: Uh, no, I, think, I don't actually remember. I think it was just one of the specials on the menu, which is pretty normal for me when I go back home. It's, it's always try something... Good. Yeah. on the specials menu. That's usually where I start at.
0: It was awesome. So look, for our listeners' sake, Um, if you're hearing double Australian accent, yeah, it's Aussies in in stereo this afternoon. <laughs> I remember meeting you uh, kind of like it was yesterday. I get a call. I'm the Senior Applied Sports Scientist for Catapult Sports. We have this guy at Notre Dame who's using some of our monitors. He may want to use some more. You need to go in and and go in and see this guy matt howley so i rock into notre dame right the the rudy music's playing in the background for me as i see touchdown jesus and come down into the training facilities area and I, i'm looking around to try to find your office you were head down ass up it was like watching a guy spinning plates i think he had three different lots of technology going at that point in time trying to feed it into the coach me plus system there was force plate data there was catapult data and I think you had three student athletes, but this was the thing that impressed me the most during that point in time. You had three student athletes locked onto every word you said, and they were incredibly, they were enamored with the words coming out of your mouth. You had those, those guys, and I think they were basketball. You managed them so well, so incredibly well. So I remember that and then meeting you and, you know, kind of that was the open door. We had so much similarity and background. but. Moving from a high compliance student athlete environment into professional sports now, what's been the biggest transition point there for you? Is that has it been the same? Do you find that same level of of attention and compliance with a professional soccer player as you did with students at Notre Dame?
1: Definitely not. Is the easiest way to say it. The student athletes with the situation that you're in as a college athlete, like. You're under control of the coach and the university if you want to say it like in broader terms like that, so with them if if you say jump it's it's how high in ninety nine percent of the cases like that's just the nature of the culture of of collegiate sports and so so when you're working with a variety of athletes and teams back there you you can like really get them to buy in and understand and and show them like how we're trying to really help them evolve from a human performance side of things, so whether that's from a tracking perspective, whether that is from like collecting wellness data into Coaching Plus back in the day, whether it was yeah. using force plates to track force output and all these other things that that we were trying to integrate into our system, it was a lot more bought in, and and they were very like eager to. Well, I want to become the best, or I want to try and become a pro at that point, so I'm going to sort of do whatever it takes. Um, it's sort of more the mentality where you're getting to the professional environment, and and it's vastly different. You're essentially trying to almost sell to them like what you need to do and then it's requiring them to buy the product where in the collegiate system, they don't have an option but to buy um, or buy in that then you're in the situation in the professional environment where you're trying to sell and show how this can help them become better, whether that means uh, getting a new contract, getting more money on an existing contract, like increasing longevity across a career and having a career that's maybe looking at between a four to six year career becoming a 10 to 12 year career and and how you approach those different situations is different. And obviously, how you phrase the information and and everything you're trying to put in front of them. Because there's, there's certain athletes and certain people that don't believe in certain things. Um, so, like, whether that is, like, the physical performance side of things or whether that is technology and those kind of things. So, it's just finding a way to message and get that, like, interactive link point with the person. So, you can actually have a conversation and, and be able to show them where they've been or where they're going or even just where they sit and how we can potentially progress that onto a onto a better situation, essentially. So that's probably the, the, the major difference, I would say, between the two environments.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. And I mean, couple that with your background coming out of Australia with Australian rules football, which is so culturally embedded in terms of its performance acumen in Australia, and then to move to the U.S., um, i often I used to use the analogy that I thought u s sports were like animals in Australia they're here and nowhere else right <laughs> you yeah, know baseball, American football um basketball at the level that it's played you know there's there's this uh North American kind of focus on sports that's different from the rest of the world, but so too are the systems that have been applied and approached. When you come over, you come to Notre Dame from Australia, and you see, you start to interrogate the systems that are working for um, for that institution. What was the biggest shock for you? What 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 was missing?
1: So, in some respect, it's like there there wasn't really a system. Is the was the funniest thing? Like this is back in two thousand and eleven, so like yeah. it's, it's ten years ago now. So from, it's it's a long while, and a lot of stuff's changed, even in the collegiate environment. So yeah. for me, there wasn't really a system like everything, like more so than ever that I'd experienced previously and got to know was so siloed and there was no transition of data between different different entities. So yeah. like the coach was not getting performance program results. And back then, like when I started, there was very little data involved. There may be in a heart rate system and some of those kind yeah. of stuff, but we had no GPS. We had no force plates right. back when I first moved over. So it was like even the communication around strength gains in the weight room and how you're measuring that kind of stuff and then how you're one conveying that to the coach, but then how can you two show that that it's actually impacting their performance on the field? It was it was near impossible. And then in the S and C chair, you've then got like the link to the medical staff from that side of things through return to play and like what yeah. are the metrics that we're using and like were still people like in some respects using like hand timers and stopwatches and these kind yeah. of things to try and run a return to play, which like In general, on field stuff, it works. But if you're talking about pure speed, power, agility kind of stuff, which majority of the sports you mentioned are played with those as the predominant qualities of them, you need to be able to measure that stuff like very accurately and precisely because if you're trying to return someone and they're going like the left leg's a certain number and the right leg's a little bit behind like but... Their, their plant leg is their right leg because they're actually a left-footed kicker. Mm. There's 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 a bigger discrepancy there, yet if it was the other way around and we're looking at a right-footed kicker, we'd, we'd potentially expect the left one to be a little bit higher with an asymmetry because they're always planting yeah. on that leg and those kind of things. And just to be able to, as things have grown and evolved, to be able to start tracking that stuff and, and have conversations and tie multiple entities and groups into that kind of stuff, I believe has been... The biggest thing that's helping drive overall performance in 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 sport now and and helping like tie so many loose ends together
0: right and you came over in a period of time and i think we were both in the us at that time i was here a lot longer practicing in a very subjective environment when we introduced catapult to the us we kind of we altered the subjective narrative right we brought technology in and said okay if you really want to know how hard practice was today We've got a quantifiable answer around that. So you were coming in to the US at a time that was in transition, right? So you had um, not only the cultural transition from Australia to the United States, but then you've got a subjective objective technology transition that was a little bit behind what was happening in professional sports. Put all that together, you make the move to Real Salt Lake What technology did you start with? I mean, you're coming into a scenario and you go, okay, I've got to get this team from A to B relative to injury reduction, from A to B relative to performance output, where I'm now tasked with this journey forward. You've experienced so much technology, Matt. What did you immediately look at from a technological standpoint for the creation of an athlete profile?
1: So for me, it was basically just using... things that we trusted most so the things that were like consistent reliable and valid like and there's so many products out there that give you that that spectrum of of those things now which is obviously important so we can get the most accurate and and data and those kind of things but for me it was then like looking at the sport and going okay like where are we getting our biggest bang for buck out of technology like you you love to have force plates and they can give you so much quality information and for profiling athletes and developing athletes, and, and, and through a wide multitude of exercises and, and these kind of things. But for us, straight up, like force plates wasn't something we got because, like, right. what, what is the lifting culture in, in a in a soccer team? It, soccer is a very variable sport when it comes to like strength training and these kind of things. So, so for us, we had to figure out the culture. So for us, it was like, okay, what are the low hanging fruits that we can? help drive some of this like injury mitigation ingri- like, and relative injury risk and these kind of things. So implementing like GPS system uh, or an athlete monitoring system in that capacity was obviously the number one because so much of the work yeah. we do is on the field. And and even over the past five years now, like that technology has Im- improved immensely in the quality and, yeah. and the way you can use it and that kind of stuff. But for us, like we, we picked up that system. We we did some heart rate monitoring because obviously it's a general aerobic sport and there's a lot of running across a ninety minute game and these kind of things to understand improvements or, um, that we were making from a cardiovascular standpoint and all these kind of things. So they were the the two biggest technologies we implemented. Yeah. But then going back to the previous question, like you've got professional athletes like oh I don't want to wear a heart rate strap or this is uncomfortable. So then it's right. like okay you you end up moving away from that one pretty fast and then you're almost putting your eggs in one basket around GPS, but being the quality of the information you're getting and how that can help, um, whether it's like planning like week-to-week or global annual planning and how you tailor things back, whether it's through a return to play and you understand worst-case scenarios and how we're going to build an athlete up uh, within a session to a game load across a period of a rehab or how much loading do we need across a week in certain intensity-based metrics and and these kind of things is... was a big thing of what we implemented. And then as we've grown over time and we've moved into a new facility a few years ago, we've then been able to layer in extra pieces of technology uh, at that point, which is now giving us a more global picture around what we do. And then um, with those pieces of technology, obviously came with some extra staff members as well to not just help use the technology, but to help interpret the information, but then also – um, build those relationships with the athlete so we can ultimately achieve the goal we're trying to achieve.
0: No, it's phenomenal. And having seen you work, um, I know that, mate, you're an educator. I mean, that's one thing I think in terms of your presence in a performance room, you educate that athlete and they, and it's not that you sell them on anything. You've got kind of some objective data that shows them, this is the pathway. Hey, here's how I'm trying to support what you're trying to achieve and we're on that same page in the framework of communication culturally inside of a a soccer team i can imagine you've got all these varied backgrounds coming together as one how important has creating a common language and education of those athletes been to your success
1: to me, like that all that stuff comes back to simple like simplifying everything so mm-hmm. like just trying to simplify the language and have them understand key aspects of what we're trying to do like there's there's going to be certain pieces of data and information that that they're not going to understand, but like for us it's been picking out like the key things that are tangible that we know either fits culturally um, with us yep. or that are very important to a given athlete so for example, like there's obviously a ton of research around running fast and how like sprint exposures and a certain number per week mitigate or or help potentially mitigate injury risk so for us it was like okay so we would implement sprinting during training but then there's obviously a stigma oh well, when i sprint i'm going to tear a muscle so it's like how do you work past that and have athletes understand no actually sprinting regularly fast within a certain parameter or within a certain framework actually can potentially make you more resilient so then over time, like players start to buy in a little bit more, and then with the help of a couple of players that we bought in that were very senior veterans, one of them had played at, in the Premier League and stuff, and at the highest level, obviously. The, and he, an and English soccer team, or like where it's a very English-dominated team, where there's not like external like managers, coaches from other countries, like whether it be Hispanic or or other European countries, like that's where. You probably see the most uh, general program where it is a composite of uh, performance and technical tactical, where in some of these other models it is a very technical tactical training based sport where there is limited focus on oh. physical preparation so with him coming in and understanding that, he was great being that he's like, "How do you need me to help you i I know this is important, like how can I help you infiltrate this into the whole team and into the club essentially so using him as an ally for what we're trying to achieve. He then basically one he was very fast anyway, so he could like walk around chest out kind of thing. That's not his personality, mm-hmm. but like, but we could at least right. have some fun with it. But on the other side of things, he he was able to then go to guys like, no, this is like important. And then when you're hearing from a peer rather than just always from the coaching staff or from the support staff, that definitely I think gravitates with a lot of players. So we were then able to Difference. yeah to go down that path of using him. To help be an ally for us and and like implement the program we wanted to implement, and now all of a sudden when we run fast, it's now a competition of I don't want to be slow, I want to be quick. And then like yeah. we've definitely seen over two or three years of consistently doing that, and it's not just that. There's obviously a multitude of factors, and luck's one of them that play a role in in like having lower injury rates and these kind of things. But for us, we've definitely seen like like that's something that's scientifically researched and validated that we've implemented in our program. And we've seen, like, obviously, correlation um, to lower injury rates, but we've also seen performance outputs go up because now guys understand sprinting, they understand force production into the ground, and they understand why that's important. And ultimately, like, I've always said to a lot of people, sports won in high intensity moments. Like, it's like, can you run past that guy? Can you stop, change direction, and pull up for a shot in basketball? Like, can the running back cut through that hole and and make and like hit the hole in the NFL? These kind of things. So, if you can, like, get the athlete to perform those high intensity movements very well and and better than others, then to me that gives you the ultimate chance of winning because so many sports are decided on one play. So, if we can help win those one plays more often, we've ultimately probably got better chance of success on the field and winning games.
0: Matt, it's incredible insight, and I think that's a moment if we underscored it. Even in our discussion so far, that's just—it's brilliant insight, and it's the repeatability of those physical systems to enable that. I talk a lot um, with various practitioners now around braking force and its importance. Right, um, you can only produce as as much speed and power as you have the braking force ability. Uh, so there's so many different factors that come into play here. But you mentioned even earlier you know, getting down to core technologies and core data sets, you know, the musculoskeletal stress, you know, either measured through GPS, you know, load monitoring, etc. And then the heart rate governed stress response. I mean, two of the, I think, essential pillars that across any sport, anybody looking at creating an athlete profile would likely start there. And then everything else kind of falls into this you know, second ordered, third ordered potential metrics in the system. Let me ask you this question. Given your touch point on technology, if you had a magic wand today and could wave that magic wand and say, you know what? There's a data stream that I would love to have every day and I wish there was a way to get it. What would that data be?
1: Honestly, like, and it's probably I would, I would be surprised if it wasn't ninety percent of practitioners' uh, magic wand, and that's you just want to know actually the readiness of your player and how ready they are to perform. Without understanding that, like, we can manage training loads through GPS. We can understand their exertion levels through heart rate. We can neuromuscularly like do neuromuscular fatigue testing through a force plate or through other other methods. Like, we can track their sleep. Like, we can do all these things which are objective and great sources of data and information but there's no, there's no way for us to like actually what's happening at that muscular level like what's happening at that tenderness level like those are the things that still don't exist in some respect like we can inference them from these other technologies and maybe have an understanding but like just understanding like is there a level of fatigue that's that's mm-hmm. present in a muscle group or, or in an athlete that that we need to understand that's probably going to Prevent them from pre- performing optimally in a game or within a given training session, and then to me that then all relates to are we then putting the athlete at greater risk than we should be like at relative to injury because yeah. we actually just don't quite know and there, and there's some people doing some great stuff out there tying these things together, but when it all when it's all said and done, we actually don't know specifically what's happening inside the body, and obviously you can do like Blood markers and all these other kind of things, but the yeah. the viability and that kind of stuff of that, it's just not really possible. So for me, it's like yeah. if there was a way to get a reading a score. And obviously, you've got Whoop and you've got Aura Ring and these other companies that like are pulling in multiple pieces, of HRV and sleep and all these other things they're using and activity load and that kind of stuff to give you a score. And we've had players trial that stuff, but we found like only certain, even to say certain metrics, we found Aura to be very good for HRV and sleep. Which okay, so that gives us a good indication of those things. But like when you're looking at the activity output, asking a soccer player to wear a ring during a game, it's oh, it's not it's not giving you anything. Like one question our head coach asked me is, Well, can we just get rid of the GPS and have everyone wear a ring? And I'm like, Well it doesn't work like that, <laughs> mate. Like I wish it was that <laughs> yeah. easy because it's non invasive, you wrap some tape around it, you don't even know you're wearing it, kind of thing. So but um, like yeah. those kind of things to me, like if we could actually understand readiness at a cellular level, if that's how deep we're trying to get with this, that would be yeah. the biggest thing for me.
0: Yeah, no, I hear it. I, I hear you loud and clear, mate. I think we might've had that discussion previously and you may have influenced some of my thought process around this too. The, um, I kind not call it adaptive zone and that's what that is leading to, right? Am I in an yeah. adaptive zone for that athlete and am I giving them the best chance of success on game day? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a compelling question that we hope technology might be able to solve for us in the future. On top of that, mate, um, when we to- when we talk about all these things and we talk about technology, um, one other thing I talk to a lot, like you know, our common friend, Doctor Ben Peterson. Um yep. When I asked him that same question uh, or a similar question, "What's the best technology you have ever bought?" His answer was a three thousand dollar coffee maker that sat in my office (laughs) and I was like okay mate well tell me a little bit about this let's unpack this he goes the best thing I could do in the morning was I had the best coffee maker in the in the building guys would come in and he goes I learned to make he became a barista basically Ben Peterson now with the 49ers becomes this barista inside of the Philadelphia Flyers and he's making coffees for these guys he said that was my check-in point and it was an emotional check-in point he goes, I, he wasn't scoring it, but he was getting a sense emotionally, socially, cognitively as to where the player was. Do you do anything like that, even if it's subconscious? Do You check a guy walk in the, into the building and say, he doesn't look right, something's wrong, or boy, he's jumping out of his skin. He's ready. Is there anything like that?
1: Yeah, like for me, the coffee example is a funny one, like our best player... Essentially, donated a coffee machine to our <laughs> our kitchen lounge area, and I walk in and I make mine in there every morning. Um, and and wow. he was sitting in there yesterday, and I find out from him, his dog's killed a bird. That it like had this huge crow that he would buried behind a tree, and that kind of stuff. And then, but his partial anxiety around the dog killing the bird, like just had him in a different mind state yesterday. Yeah. But then the other thing for, for me, the locker room. Is a very interesting place in sport, uh, as you're aware. Sometimes it's sacrosanct, other times it's free go, and and yeah. I think it depends on the relationship you have with the playing group and certain players in there. And mm. and honestly, like that's been my a lot of my touch point is around the locker room. A lot of players in the morning will sit in their locker room and just hang out, chill out, like have a conversation. And for me, that's where you get the nuggets of information is like, they're not going to maybe come out and tell you, but it's like you hear three conversations going on at once and you're like, okay, there's a p- important piece of information over there, but then it, you don't just walk over there and like have that conversation. It's like, how do I circle back and get the information I need out of that athlete kind of thing. So, yeah. and that, and that's where like a couple of uh players that we've had in our squad, like for me have been great. go in there and sometimes they've been having a punt overnight and it's like you're talking about their wins and their losses having a gamble like it's the other days it's like what's happened in the nba or the nfl like whose team won Mm. and whose team lost just little things like that and but then it's like how does that information then infiltrate and then what are the other things you hear um from different athletes or is there someone in there that all of a sudden this morning they're not communicating and they're just sort of sitting there they're, they're in there but they're like they're a bit closed off and that kind of stuff and then for me that's that's the point that you can then start going, like you can go up to them, you sort of put your arm around if you need to, you can have that conversation and really get some information out of there. And, and sometimes they're willing to share um, because of something they're able and wanting to share, but there's also other times that they don't want to share. And um, like, and maybe a family matter, or maybe something going on at yeah. home, but it's like, how do you just understand those things? Because mm. potentially, even with all these great techs that are out there and if the athletes are using it or the team's using it well, you're not going to pick up on some of those kind of stressy kind of things that may right. have a like, it may become apparent in the car ride to work or from waking the kids up to dropping them at school and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And and they're the things that we can't measure. So that that human interaction piece um, is is vital for me.
0: It's critical, and uh, mate, it became vital for me too. And I think I was pretty gun ho as a young performance coach with an Australian national team again in baseball. And I remember we had access to a, for one of the tournaments we were playing, access to an Australian Olympic team psychologist. And he said a couple of things to me. Firstly, he was like very focused on process. And so one of his parts of the equation for process for him, he'd go out and get um, a two by four about eight feet long, you know, at Home Depot and he'd bring that in and he'd drop it on the floor and tell the guys, okay, single file, I want you to walk across this beam. To a man, everyone would walk across this beam flawless. And then unbeknownst to us, he'd gone outside and found somewhere like 80 feet in the air and put another beam out there. And he goes, now we're going up to do that. And the guy's like, you're out of your mind. He goes, why are you going to approach this any differently? It's process, right? The only time you're going to worry about process is when you're thinking about outcome." If the outcome is I'm going to fall off, I'm going to fail, you're outside of process. So he had little things like that. But one of the underpinning phrases he stated to me, I'll never forget uh, because I was pretty data heavy in my early days. And he looked at me and he says, Gary, he goes, you know, as human beings, we're feeling animals that think. We're not thinking animals that feel. And I kind of put it into that hierarchy that emotionally... I need to understand where my athletes are. And to your point, there's no technology that enables that. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it'd be a fantastic area to dive deep with guys like Michael Gervais, you know, from the the Seahawks. I think he does a phenomenal job one on one with athletes in, in terms of understanding that. But, mate, I want to take you back to something that you and I had fun working around when COVID hit. So uh, I think it was probably March, April, I think it was of 2020, and we were looking, started to look at some data. So for our listeners, Matt and I were working together, starting to dive deep into machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so Matt was very generous, and we were kept a very closed kind of circle around the information we were sharing. Um, on AI and we were trying to understand if AI could help create risk profiles around athlete injury. And we were looking at data from a previous season, we're getting ready to populate data into a new season. Bang! COVID hits. You and I jump on a phone talking about this. I think we'd both been on a practitioner call where we'd seen people frozen in fear because of COVID, thought they were losing their jobs. We saw people um, just still not doing anything. Then there was a progressive group, which I kind of put you into, what I've always wanted time to reevaluate and do some different things. So I'm gonna dive deep into something. And you were in that progressive mix. And I remember picking up the phone and us having a conversation, could we use machine learning or artificial intelligence to model the future? What potentially is going to happen here? So you immediately were the one that says, okay, let's start looking at a compressed preseason because we don't know when we're going back to play we're going to have a compressed preseason once we get in season, the likelihood of an increased game density instead of say two every ten days, maybe three games every ten to to try to find those revenues and those t v revenues and everything else all the all the things that were potentially going to happen, we started to do some modeling around that, and we came up with almost a resilient scoring system to put your athletes into. So you knew where they sit. How how good was that for you? Was that something that would you ever look back and say, you know, I can rely fully on machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, as a standalone? And I'll ask a second question, mate. Do you think it can predict injury?
1: So... To answer the first one first, I don't think um, you can fully rely on it because that goes back to the the previous question of like there's so much human pieces that are being missed within that system. So, we we feel, as you're aware, like we fed in a ton of data into that system and and it was very interesting, like right? because you're trying to understand the future that that is completely a question mark. And that's where we were walking into. So for us, we fed in as much quality of information as we had and reliable information. And then it was very interesting to see what that thought, but then also with the information that, that we collect or just the understanding the staff has, like, what did we think it may tell us as well? And then what did it tell us different was probably some of the things. And And it was really interesting to see with the training load modeling that that we traditionally do, like it was pretty responsive to if we can get this done, we should be able to keep like majority of the players relatively healthy. But the biggest thing for me was getting to know those dense periods of the schedule. Like the the preseason stuff was, it's hard, you giving out a conditioning program was you, you weren't allowed to have guys in the facility and then it went to individual training through small group and then... You basically had two weeks of full team training before you were into almost games again, or before we flew to an Orlando bubble situation. So, for us, it was like understanding like that progression and like w- with the conditioning uh, program that we're going to put together. Like, how were there certain things that we needed to focus on that maybe we wouldn't wouldn't normally focus on? Because soccer is obviously played in relatively condensed spaces and, and a high amount of change of direction, eccentric load, these kind of things that when you're doing your traditional conditioning program, there's generally not an eccentric load in a running program. That's just a relation like the nature of what that is. So yeah. for me, it was like going, is there ways we need to try and start simulating some eccentric load more through whether it's yep. gym-based activities uh, with what guys had at home to do or even during our running programs and, and these kind of things. So we obviously adjusted some things in that to potentially simulate some more eccentric load, a lot more XL D-cells like over short spaces. It wasn't necessarily purely change of direction work, but just getting like five-yard XL into a five-yard D-cell. And you don't think traditionally, oh, this can be aerobic. But then when you assess the data – it becomes like 160 beat per minute across a three-minute set. and You're like, it was essentially an aerobic exercise that we did, but we only ended up covering 150 meters during the rep. And you just, it gets your mind thinking, like, okay, like, there's more than one way to skin the cat and, like, how are we going to approach this? So we did some stuff like that, which was obviously not mainstream. And you had said to me five years ago, okay, you're going to run XL, D-cell shuttles and get an aerobic response out of it. Like every eight seconds, you would have looked at the person and like had three heads kind of thing. But like those kind of things, like we changed to get some of what we needed from like a performance output uh, and have guys repaired. And then when we looked at the density of the schedule, we had a like sense a younger roster than we'd had before. Um, So like we were more confident that... Younger players potentially just more resilient anyway based on age and they don't have a history of injury and these kind of things. So for us, it was interesting looking at that. And then there's always those few players on your roster that you like or we'd manage through tight stretches before, like maybe three and eight days or three and seven Saturday, Wednesday, Saturdays are pretty common in MLS soccer during the season normally that we'd be like, okay, like this guy we traditionally felt was good for like two, or he'd be like, okay, he's an older guy. We want to play him Saturday, Saturday. So we'd try and speak to the coaching staff and be like, management wise, this is best for this athlete. Is there any way that we can take him out of a middle game of the week? Or we feel this guy's good to go too, but playing him in the third or starting him in the third is potentially the risk factor. And there was a couple of our players that, that we already had on flag that we were traditionally trying to manage that immediately popped up as like immediate red flags um, through that yeah. kind of system. So it was, Maybe confirmation bias on what we already thought, but it was very right. interesting the way that it, the way that the system delivered information that we were already we would have already approached it that way. And there was potentially a couple of guys on the other hand that we were maybe more conservative with generally, that then um, the system was like seemed to react pretty favorable for that they could go mm. three games in a row. And it was interesting right. one of those guys did go three games in a row and in the bubble, which was like three games over 10 days this period. By the 75th minute of the third game, he was out on his feet. Like, which so so it was it wasn't that he got hurt, but it was maybe was his performance output not able to stay at the standard required to help us win a game. So like that was the other side of stuff that so the AI maybe took into consideration a little bit more the injury stuff. But then this is where our knowledge of the athletes, understanding their performance, and maybe a guy might elect to manage himself, quote unquote, through a game so he can get through. 90 minutes or he, like, if there's a certain time and he knows he's not going to get to a ball or it's 50-50, maybe he'll just like, okay, I'm not going to go for that one. so I can save a little bit of energy for the next the next play or whatever that may be. So to me, that was very interesting. And then the second question, is injury predictable? Well, I personally don't think it is. I think we can mitigate risk as best we can, but I don't think we can actually go looking at a data stream, this guy's going to get hurt. Like we know... So many athletes are so different, and they they respond to different things in different ways. So for me, I look at guys like Cristiano Ronaldo, LeBron James, these mm. kind of guys that are in immensely physically gifted athletes. And using like LeBron recently, his injury was a guy rolled up on him, like it was a football what? injury that happened on a basketball yeah. court kind of thing. And yeah. to me, I'm like, if the guy doesn't roll up on him, he probably doesn't get hurt. Well, I think he's had one pure soft tissue injury like the groin a couple of years ago in 17 seasons. So to me, like there are certain guys like that. And and we've got a guy on our squad that we haven't had for that long, but he came to us, I think he's in season four with us now. And Mm. coming into last year, no issues ever, um, like with injury and not someone you ever get concerned about doing anything like, because he's just robust, resilient. He's like 32 now, but super Mm. robust and resilient he he traditionally always goes for a run and does something when he arrives in a city. Like that's just him. He's got into a routine yeah. of doing that. So returns yeah. to us on a Friday or was a Thursday afternoon last year before preseason started at the start of the year, pre COVID shoots me a text. He's like, Hey, if you're still in, I'm, I'll come down. We'll do a session, just an easy run, maybe a few passes on a ball, like something completely normal. And then, no, like done the whole packet, like uh, like the whole off-season program. Communicates with you religiously. Like he's very good about communicating and understands how to detail what he's feeling and stuff. Right. Comes out there. We do the session. It's probably like twenty-minute warm-up and like a little bit of passing. So very light, light loading. And then we go to just do it like a little bit of a running drills at the end, or or some like some striding work literally like three steps into the first one. He's like, Oh my calf. Like, Oh, it doesn't feel right. So we did do a couple of reps and I'm like, okay. And he, he's like, yeah, he goes, I think it's fine, but let's just stop. I'm like, no problem. And then he's out for five weeks with a calf, like misses wow. the whole of preseason. Like, and this is a guy that's super resilient, knows his body and had done this yeah. hundreds of times. And he re- remarkably got hurt. And, yeah. Like, apart from that, he's basically had no other injury. He Had like a court calf last year, which is that's inevitable in mean, soccer. Yep. You kicked and it's it's a caught calf. But like beyond that, he's so resilient. And if you, like a hundred times out of a hundred, I would have let him do that session. It's not something I'm going to hold him out of. Right. But like, it's just so hard to predict the injury. Was it the fact that he like may have sat on the plane with his legs crossed and he and he, and he basically his calf went to sleep sitting on a plane watching a movie, and there yeah. wasn't enough blood flow through the muscle. Then he goes Mm -hmm. to take off on a sprint four hours later, and that's what causes the injury. Uh, We're not tracking that kind of thing. So to me, that's what there's some inevitable factors that make these things not predictable. Can we mitigate certain things? Hundred percent. But actually, go. He's going to get hurt at this time on this day. No, not for me.
0: You can't control everything, and I think you nailed it. And one term you used that I became familiar with with AI. And I think one of the benefits of artificial intelligence or machine learning through data, if we're looking for patterns in the data, one of the things I like about is is I would always say, even at Catapult, hey, if you go looking for something, you'll find it, right? AKA confirmation bias, right? That is right there. And that was one of the things that I found with AI that it kind of took me out of my confirmation bias pattern, right, took me out of that a little bit. Do you consciously, understand your own confirmation bias and do you have any skills or do you throw anything do you take a step back and go i want to look at this differently do you get other sets of eyes on it is is it even a factor in your preparation day to day
1: i think it's a factor in everyone if you look at something as plainly as how you want to program in the weight room if you do something or it works for you or you've done it a hundred times before you inherently go oh, well, that's the best way to just go about it. And, like, for me, like, that's been something in this role that you've just, like, you've got to trust your staff and these kind of things. And, like, they all, you you hire people for a certain reason because they bring in certain qualities, experiences, like, almost intangibles in some respect that definitely help you progress and become a better practitioner yourself the xl cell stuff like our head strength coach is very big on some sprinting technique kind of stuff and like the way we do some xl work which we, like when we're doing that stuff we're, we're thinking as much about the physical output as, as anything when we're doing it and trying to train the athlete in that way and and honestly like five years ago i probably would have been questioning what what why how like this kind of stuff right. relative to that yet now like it's part of what we do and like there's certain things like that for me and like and i think data is exactly the same way like using force plates for an example so many people are married to looking at jump height and just these few global metrics that are easy to understand and maybe it's an easy for an athlete and a coach to understand but what is the strategy behind getting to that output point and is that output point actually the output or is there other metrics through impulses and forces and all these other things that exist that we need to be understanding better so we can um, better prepare and train our athletes. And so many people are like, oh, well, I jumped higher today. And I'm like, okay, you jumped higher, but what did you change to get there? Is that actually beneficial to you or is that actually something that, you can't replicate on a field or you can't like get that transfer point. And I think to me, that's the yeah. biggest thing that people really struggle with is just is well like, oh well, I want them to get higher or okay, I want them to get stronger. So if the deadlift goes from three fifty to three eighty five, okay, I did great. but then if you watch the athlete perform the movement, all of a sudden, they're like, okay, like there's a little bit of like valgus collapse, like there's a little bit of a hip shift, and then all of a sudden you got a little bit of extra spinal loading, and it may not happen doing the deadlift because they're not lifting these extreme weights and these kind of things, but does that then translate to then We have an issue on the field that because you've shifted to the right a little bit and you put yep. this stress in a certain way, or there's some inhibition somewhere that then the athlete goes to sprint or to kick a ball, and that's what. Not saying that causes the uh, the injury, but there may be a like a causation effect from doing things poorly off the field that relate on field.
0: 100%. And look, mate, I'll confirm your bias (laughs) philosophically uh, by saying I see it the same way. I mean, one of the challenges historically with any organization is getting your coaching staff to agree on what are the key performance indicators, not only by position, but by individual athlete, and then again, by time of season. I used to make the joke with my strength coach. I hired a strength coach and took him to Taiwan with me. And I said, today, he goes, what are we going to cover today with the coaching staff? This is all pre-spring training. I said, oh, mate, we're just going to walk in and ask him to give us a list of the key performance indicators for each one of the players on the roster. I said, we'll be in there five minutes. He goes, oh, when do we come back? I said, probably two or three days later. They won't have any of this done, right? (laughs) Because getting a collective staff to agree on what the KPIs are, number one, is the very first thing. For our domain, what is the first audit metric to achieve that KPI? What are we going to measure? What has the most impact? For me in my sport, it was looking at things like velocity and spin rate for a pitcher. Right, Those are the, the two key, probably first ordered metrics for physical performance for that pitcher that I needed to try to do an inverse kinematic understanding and triangulation to see how they they produced force so I can understand it for that, for the physical side of the equation. But it's getting those first ordered metrics in alignment with KPIs that I see as one of the greatest missing factors in all of sport.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Like, like in soccer, it's it's a unique sport. Baseball is the ultimate skill based sport, in my opinion, yeah. like apart yeah. from golf and some of these, but from a team sport perspective, it's so right. individual, technical, tactically based. And, where yep. soccer, there is a huge physical aspect to it. But I find with soccer, it, like, it comes down to like, can you serve that ball with the right dip on it? And these kind of things, which like on a set piece, do you set the right pick, which creates that opening? And these mm. kind of things, like for, from a physical standpoint in soccer, they're, they're very hard for me to train, if, if that makes sense. Right. like, like yeah. It's hard that... for us to then correlate and go, what puts more dip on the ball on a corner kick? Mm. Like, Is it the fact you need greater hip extension to create a greater whip through the ball and these kind of things so there's some in soccer like a sport that's very heavy around data collection sports science Mm. in general load monitoring There still is some things is is there a way from a skill acquisition side of sports science that we can actually start impacting performance outputs and is it like those kind of things? Do we need to understand some of this body movement kind of stuff, the, like the, the human kinetic stuff better? That is it the fact that we, we need that? Is it the fact that you've got to come through with more of a flexed knee to get under the ball which which creates more top spin or, or whatever it is and they're, and they're the things that are still relatively unknown and not anything that's come across like my email or, or my computer that I understand yeah. in that space very well. Yeah. So I still think there's ways that when we look at this stuff, so many practitioners whether it's S&C, sports science, these kind of stuff, we do forget that skill acquisition piece a lot. So it's like, then how do we then work with the coaching staff once we maybe are able to help an athlete develop a greater range of motion, whatever it is, greater yeah. velocity through, through swing right. phase of kicking a ball that yeah. can help achieve those outcomes.
0: And it, you know, some of those skills neurologically are patterns that have burned in since the kid was you know first kicked that soccer ball. Right? It's yeah. like I always use with pitchers, you know, when they first threw the rattle across the crib, you know, that's that's what I've kind of got to, you know, is that changeable? Is that actionable? Yeah. Is that just, is it a nice, is it kind of a nice-to-know pattern? Yeah, there's so much, mate, you're 100% right. So much we don't know. Let me ask you this. Best practice. Let's talk about best practices. Who have you seen out there that you kind of look over your shoulder at and say, boy, and I'll... I'll park somebody we both know to the side for a moment, so we don't reference him. But Probably David going to be Ten- my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be David Tenney, right? Yeah. So David's yeah. moved into Austin FC, and you, know, you know now now back back in your sandbox, so to speak. Um, and very quietly, I think they're setting up some amazing kind of stuff over in Austin. But let's push him to the side, like you know, like like the cat that's pushing the you know, the drink off the table for a minute. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about best practice. Have you seen, like you mentioned Duncan French and and Duncan coming through Notre Dame over to UFC, some phenomenal stuff going on there with not even teams to manage, but ind- independent athletes. You and I both talked in and around the Chicago White Sox at one point. We've looked over our shoulder, both of us, and I remember sharing notes from Barcelona FC with you as well. and. Who? Who do you look at and go, you know what? They've got something going there.
1: Yeah, like, like, he's like a friend, but Duncan, like, the way that, like, when he came to Notre Dame and bought some of that cultural stuff from the EIS and some of the organizations yeah. he'd been at previously around like just staff modeling and understanding like Mm. what everyone was good at, what the whole, what it takes to win model and these kind of things just got people in the U S anyway, thinking differently about the approach Mm. to these kind of things. And then when I look at what the USC is reducing and like, we haven't caught up for a couple of years in person now, but like Mm. you see that they've now got a, an MMA journal or um, literature that's coming out in that kind of stuff. As you say, like it's gone from, he's not in a team sport. It's like, athletes have the ability to opt in to train with them or do their testing do their fight prep with them and then you've still got all their superstars of the world like the McGregors and these guys that obviously have their own squads and this kind of stuff so the way with the research they're doing and the data they're collecting and the way they're just understanding a sport which is still so so young like it's been around for a while now but understanding that sport and how certain things impact either performance or relative injury and concussion and all these things they're delving Mm. into to me like that kind of stuff is yeah ultimately fascinating and then like I feel like there's so many people like around the NBA and these other sports that are doing some really good stuff. Like you hear about certain performance teams and then the Milwaukee Bucks have a, have a very strong mm. performance team. There's obviously a strong Australian connection there as well. Yep. But like yeah. some of the things they're doing in, in that space and then the things the Philadelphia Sixers did, the 76ers did for a while. Yeah. just Some some teams are just approaching things completely differently. Um, So for me, it's just understanding those kind of things. And then there's been people that have, or, or organization that have employed people that they've tried to go down this path and it just hasn't worked. So like, nice. for me, it's like, there's so, there's multitude of factors that impact that, but to get to best practice and what is best best practice in some sport, it's still very much unknown. And then like in sports where there is very low training density or training times relative to schedule to me, like, it's like, okay, can we actually achieve best practice by, focusing on the physical or is it more just focusing on that technical tactical skill aspect right. side of it by honing in those kind of things which is ultimately changing some sports in the us right now like baseball's sure. changing a lot in that space the nba with yeah. the way the game played is changing a lot in those spaces just to understand what is best practice but then does this best practice relate to performance outcome and ultimately wins
0: yeah no 100 percent, and You know, it's really interesting because I think for a long time it's been, and I don't know whether this is driven from the general manager level within a professional organization or whether it is just the unknown quotient of human adaptive evolution. Most of the time, like when I talk to a general manager or a pitching coach in baseball, they're like, compress, compress. I only throw so many pitches today. Let's let's peel them back. And I'm like, go on the other side of the coin. I said, well, you know, if you limit what he's going to do this season, you are setting up a limitation for the next season. This is not a bullets in the gun. This is about building the size of the gun. Yeah. Let's not compress efforts through what you think is a sports science approach. And it brings up... You know, the question relative, and we'll close on this, but the question relative to injury, there was an injury in Major League Baseball. Mike Trout had a high, high, what they classified early as high ankle sprain. Looks like it's a calf sprain now. But immediate panic across the board. Everyone's trying to reference uh, the Durant uh, Achilles tear, right, that happened in the NBA. Oh, my God, the magnitude of cost. He's going to be gone for six weeks what do we do? This couldn't have happened at a worse time. Walk me through your optic on that expansion, <laughs> expansion of an athlete through compression, and then an injury optic. Something like Kevin Durant's ankle. Talk, talk to me about that. What do you? How, how do you look at that stuff?
1: Yes. Yeah, like the Mike Trout one, to quickly touch on that, it was he was on second base and literally jogged off second base and yeah. grade two calf tear. I'm like you go. there there's an there's an underlying factor there that, that either was known potentially, which yeah. we'll never know, or was so- unknown. And then to me, because of how easy that one happened. You immediately start questioning systems processes are we doing everything required to yeah. to check like that athletes are in this position to perform with what we have so i found that one very interesting like in the way it happened and then so funny like when we talk about or we look at the durant calf into the achilles and then then you have the like this year one the anthony davis um which was like Again, uh, an Achilles tendon issue, like it wasn't actually degenerative, but it was just an inflamed tendon, so there's actually no tendon issue from what you read, um, into a calf tear. We understand like the risk factor with those kind of injuries. Okay, he's coming back from a calf. We've probably, during a rehabilitation process, potentially loaded it up to try and re-strengthen that area. Like It's the the classic model of rehabilitation. You don't do less. You're probably going to do a ton of calf raises, some dynamic work, a lot of skipping, these kind of things to, to get that load through it, which ultimately mm. in a practitioner standpoint, you're like, okay, he's getting through this kind of stuff. You then add them into some sports skills and these lower level kind of things, and they, they progress through. And, yeah. and whether it's across three, four, five weeks, you're like, okay, the, the, one of our biggest pet hates is the old injury timeline when we, we just throw, somewhat throw arbitrary <laughs> oh, numbers yeah. out. That's another story spaghetti for another Spaghetti on the day.
0: wall, buddy. That's yeah. a six-week injury. Spaghetti on the wall. Without yeah. even so, considering the individual's ability to tissue remodel. Right? Those vary.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. So like, all that kind of stuff. And like, so then all of a sudden you have championship games coming up or you have playoffs yeah. coming up or these kind yeah. of things. It, we're, we're held by so many factors. You've got right. the money. You've got the fame aspect in some respect, as much as people won't give that credit yep. for. And then you've got the glory aspect. Like, So if you're not 4%. like, uh, you're under the pump to get the guy back, um, the reality of the situation. But then in some respect, like looking at Durant one, potentially was he overloaded during rehabilitation, which put greater right. stress on the, so there may have been no Achilles issue leading up to the calf. Okay, like that's fine, but then did we overload an area the inner guy, when you look at his like physical makeup, is so long, so thin, so lean, did we then like overload an area, and when we've like loaded this up, did was it the Achilles and the lower calf potentially taking all yeah. that stress, and then all of a sudden the, the 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 belly of the calf looks great because through movement manipulation and and him like yeah. like masking these movements and this kind of stuff because we know the greatest athletes in the world can alter movement and mask deficiencies better than anyone else. And they so compensate, what, right? Yeah, yep, they compensate fantastically well. But does he then start compensating like it's 2% and like yeah. everything looks normal, like jumps look normal. Oh, maybe it's a little bit steeper yeah. and this kind of stuff. But then you've stressed out this tendon, which it's been crazy the way the Achilles tendon has now become almost the injury in sport because Right. Like with, with athletes becoming stronger, powerful, more explosive, it's putting that yeah. that tiny little piece of tendon under so much more stress, and from there, the athlete's just at greater risk of injury, and then you look at the Anthony, and then he obviously tears it. Then you look at the Anthony Davis one, like over the past few weeks, an wow. athlete that the media and everyone's hounding, oh, it's the calf strain, like he's got to get back, or people look at him when he grabs it initially, and he starts touching the Achilles, and that's because yeah. there was an Achilles issue with him to start that you then oh. find out. But it's, he oh. ends up tearing the calf because the Achilles issue doesn't or isn't relative to actually tearing the Achilles. It's something potentially up the chain that goes. And so he does that. And then everyone's like, oh, he's been out for like 30 games. He's missed this much time. It's two months at the calf. And then having torn a calf personally – it's yeah. like one of it's maybe like one of the worst muscle like muscle belly injuries to have. Like mine was a good mine was a good grade three. Like I ripped the thing really well, so I understand what it's like. Like I couldn't walk like was based on crutches for a few days. Right. And people are like, you tore a calf. And I'm like, this is just yeah. where it goes. Like some muscles yeah. more so than others just require more time for regeneration, healing, tissue remodeling, all that kind of stuff. Bingo. But then also right. the reintegration to get guys Back up to sports performance because you don't want to put these players out there at risk. You've got to make sure they're ready to go.
0: Hundred percent. And return to play is different than return to competition, right? Yes. I mean, it's a different spectrum. Let's touch on this question: How did you hurt your calf? What were you doing?
1: A sprint start, sprint start in a university lab, literally like <laughs> yep. down a three point start. We we're doing twenty meter or ten meter testing in a lab, and I was. 22 at the time playing sport like active we warmed up we did everything you meant to do literally three point stance right leg foot sorry left leg forward so I go right foot left foot takes the ground and I literally felt like someone had a zipper on the back of my calf and ripped it and I stopped and hopped and then the professor was actually the person that I was working for uh, with the football club at that point and he's like don't be soft there's nothing wrong and I flexed my calf and you could literally see the calf would like come apart because it was like torn that badly and then I'll and then cool twelve God. weeks later, I was finally yeah. back to performing like within a an amateur setting of sport. Twelve weeks later, it was like it was brutal.
0: Well, mate, when you get older, the injuries kind of happen for the stupidest things, and you don't even know this, mate. I am uh, five days now post-op from um, an arthroscopy on my right knee that happened changing a garbage disposal unit in my kitchen. <laughs> don't ask. <laughs> Yeah, don't ask how it happened. But, uh, mate, yeah. age of the athlete and uh, and and mechanism of the injury are always fun to dive into. Mate, look, I know we're pretty much out of time. And, um, look, I can't thank you enough for spending this time, Matt. I mean, you're so incredibly insightful. And I think you're, what you've learned so far and what you've brought to the area of performance is not only influential to the people that are on your team in real salt lake but they influence people like me who are towards the end of my practitioner career as well you know you've you've seen things and you're modeling things and you're questioning everything and i think because of that you're kind of one of the rising stars that i see in performance i think the way we just talked about like the duncan french's the darren Burgesses, the Lorena torres of the world right the way we talk about them not too not too distant future, mate. Your name's going to be in that mix. So, look, congratulations for everything you're doing. Um, it's an honor to call you a friend, and uh, I'm excited for your future, buddy. You're going to do some really cool stuff.
1: Well, I appreciate it, and thanks to the guys at Kinetic as well for allowing me to jump on and, and share some of these experiences as well.
0: Thanks for joining me, Matt, and thank you for listening to The Human Kinosome Project. I look forward to joining you in a live conversation at discord.com.gg slash kinetics yes we have a dedicated channel for you to dive a little deeper so together we'll be able to ask even better questions our music as always is created by the infinitely talented joanna magic guys the game is just beginning